Our reading this morning will be from Luke chapter 2, verses 22 to 52. If you wouldn't mind standing as you're able, please, for the reading of God's Word. Luke chapter 2, 22 through verse 52. And when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to make a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all the peoples a light for the revelation to the Gentiles, and for the glory of your people, Israel. And his father and mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also so that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. And she did not depart from the temple, worshiping and fasting with prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of Him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Israel. And when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the Feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it. But supposing him to be with the group, they went a day's journey. But then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. After three days... They found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? They did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. 
Let's pray. As we look into God's Word this morning, Lord, as we consider these two scenes from your childhood, I pray that you would help us to understand better why it is that you came in the first place and what that means for us. Lord, would your Holy Spirit speak through your Word this morning. I pray all these things in your name. Amen. Well, it is, it is Christmas morning, and we, we have this story here of Jesus as a child. And it made me think there's one man in history, you know, outside of Jesus himself, there's one man in history I think that we owe the fact that we celebrate Christmas at all to. One of, uh, it's kind of becoming one of my favorite um, church fathers, early, early Christians. Um, his name is Athanasius, and he was born in Egypt just before 300 A.D. And, he, and the reason why he's so important is because during his time, there grew an idea, uh, an idea grew in popularity that Jesus was of similar substance as God, but not the same substance. And you have to understand that in the Greek language, the difference between the two words, similar and same, is one letter. It's actually one iota, right? And so when we have the phrase, not one iota, this is actually where that comes from. That's where that phrase originates. So for Athanasius, he realized that 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 one iota really did make a difference. He realized that the, the, the gospel hung in the balance on this issue. And his ministry and his life became singularly focused. His mission singularly focused, defend the gospel by teaching people why Jesus had to be fully human in order to atone for human sin, and also fully, truly, not similar to, but the same divine God, in order to have the power to save us. Athanasius wrote this. He wrote, you must understand why it is that the, father, the word of the Father, so great and so high, has been made manifest in bodily form. He has not assumed a body as proper to his own nature, far from it, for as the word, he is without body. He has been manifested in a human body for this reason only, out of the love and goodness of his Father, for the salvation of us men. And see, Jesus was born into the world with a specific purpose, with a singular focus, the singular mission. Jesus' fight was brewing, not, you know, in, in a few years or a decade before, like Athanasius. No, Jesus' fight had been brewing since the Garden of Eden. And His purpose was established millennia before, His purpose was established before the foundations of the earth, even. And so our text this morning, it has two scenes. 
Two scenes of Jesus' childhood. We have very little in, uh, uh, by way of uh, history or, or, or um, narrative of what Jesus' childhood was like, but we do, have, we do have these two scenes in the book of Luke. One when Jesus is but 40 days old, and one when he's 12 years old. And both scenes take place at the temple, and I think that's important. The only scenes we have of Jesus' childhood, Jesus is at the temple, the place of God's presence, His Father's house. And in the first scene, I want to ask us the question, or I want to answer the question, what was His mission? What was Jesus' mission? We celebrate Christmas. We celebrate, the, I, I think, the greatest miracle that ever happened, right? Uh, perhaps we could say that the resurrection was Uh, the miracle that had the greatest effect. But I think the incarnation, Jesus becoming human, was actually the greatest miracle that ever happened, that God would put on human flesh. It's uh, God had raised other people from the dead before, but He had never put on human flesh before. So here we have this great miracle. What was His mission? Why did Jesus do that. And in the second scene, I want to ask the question, what are we missing? What was his mission and what are we missing? So, in Luke chapter 2, 21 through 40, or 22 through 40, Mary and Joseph, they bring Jesus to the temple. And this is probably there's probably a few reasons why uh, they're all coming into this one scene that Luke kind of mashes up together. Probably three things that they're doing here at the temple. First, the law states that Mary needed to do a purification ceremony 40 days after giving birth to a baby boy. That was part of of the Jewish religion. And so she had to come to the temple and um, uh, be purified, have this purification ceremony. Second, every firstborn had to be redeemed via a sacrifice. If you remember back in in Exodus, when the angel of the Lord goes through and and takes out all of the firstborn, but all of the firstborn of Israel are saved, God establishes at that time that every firstborn in Israel, whether it be a human or an animal or anything, every child that first opens the womb is his. And they had to be redeemed through a sacrifice. And so Mary comes in order to present that ransom to pay in exchange for her son. But there's a third thing that seems to be present here in this scene, something that wouldn't have been required, that would have been above and beyond. And it it makes us think of Hannah, if you remember in the book of 1 Samuel, when she's, she's, uh, she's not been able to have a child and she's praying there at the temple and Eli, the priest, hears her praying. And, he, and what does it say? It says that you know, she's, she, he can see her mouthing the words of the prayer, but he can't hear her voice, and he thinks that she's drunk, and he's like, you know, showing her the way out, like, okay, you know, hey, why don't you go sleep this off a little bit? And she's like, no, really, I'm not, I'm not drunk. I'm just, I'm praying. And he realizes, oh, she's, like, she's fervent in this prayer. And he says, hey, God's going to answer your prayer. And what happens? She has a a son, Samuel, and what does she do? She brings Samuel to the temple, presents him, because she's been praying, oh, 
God, would you give me a son? And so she brings Samuel to the temple and she says, I'm, I give my son in service to the Lord. And she leaves Samuel there in care, in the care of Eli, the, the priest, right? And so we see something similar here that Mary is coming. It says to present him to the Lord. Presenting Jesus as a servant to God. So in this first piece of the mission, I want you to see that Jesus came as a servant, as God's servant. But what kind of servant would he be? And that's where these two people in this scene, Simeon and Anna, come in. You see, they're two witnesses. In the Old Testament, we're told that uh, every, everything needed to be confirmed with two witnesses, and so we have Simeon, and he's going to tell us a little bit about what this Jesus is about. And then we have Anna at the end, and she's going to kind of confirm or corroborate what Simeon says. What does Simeon say about, about Jesus when, she, when, he, when he sees this baby boy? A baby, and remember, 40, 40 days old. You know, I, I don't know if you know... I'm sure you know. 40-year-old babies only do like three things, okay? I mean, babies are really only entertaining until, like, when they get to like nine months, I think. You know, they should just come out at nine months. That's when they're, they start to be like super awesome. You know, before nine months old, they just, they just, they eat, they cry, they fill diapers. That's it. Or sleep. I guess they do four things. They do four things. They're cute, I guess, but... Most of them, anyway. At any rate, Simeon sees Jesus, and he knows. He knows right away. And what does he say? He says that this child is the consolation of Israel, it says in verse 25. The Holy Spirit's on him. He says this is the consolation. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel. Now, in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 1, 61, verse 2, a number of different places. I'll, I'll read 61, verse 2 to you. It says that Jesus, uh, that, that there's a child that's to come, this consolation of Israel is to come. It's, it's to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, the day of vengeance, the vengeance of our God, to comfort or to console, right? To comfort all who mourn. This child is to be the comfort to Israel because he's to deliver them. And that is corroborated later in verse 38 by Anna when she says that this child is the redemption of Israel, right? The redemption of Jerusalem, she says. Second, the second piece I want you to understand about Jesus' mission is this, is that Jesus came as God's servant for salvation. Jesus came as God's servant, particularly for salvation. But what kind of salvation is it? Well, we see in Simeon's uh, quote here a few things. He says that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples. This salvation you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, he says in verse 31. And it's a light for revelation to the Gentiles and glory 
to Israel. The first thing I want you to see about this salvation is it's not just for Israel. It is for Israel, but it's not just for Israel. The gift of Jesus on Christmas is far wider than that. It's far more expansive. It was prepared from all time for all to see. And there are, there are dozens of passages. In, in Isaiah alone, there are dozens of passages that I could quote, but we don't have all morning, right? I'll give you just one, one that I thought was particularly pertinent. Isaiah chapter 49, verse 6, it says this, is, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. Now, now listen, who's being brought as God's servant? It'd be too easy for him to be salvation merely for Israel. Do you see what it's saying? It's Isaiah saying, it'd be too easy for Jesus. It'd be too easy for the Messiah to be salvation only for Israel. No, that's light work for him. That's a warm-up. He's come to do some heavy lifting. It goes on in Isaiah 49, he says, I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth, it says. Third piece I want you to understand about Jesus' mission. So Jesus came as God's servant for salvation to all kinds of people, all kinds, to the ends of the earth. There's no kind of person that is outside of the realm of who Christ came to save. You think, oh, well, but I'm this, or I'm that, or, or I come from here, or I've done this. <laughs> do not, do not disgrace God becoming human by saying, that you are outside of His ability to save. By saying that, that somehow the dead weight of your sin is too heavy for Him to lift. How dare we? No. Jesus came as God's servant for salvation to all kinds of people. It's not just salvation for Israel. It's salvation that extends to the people of all nations. Luke wants us to know that this was always God's plan centuries before Isaiah was saying it. Hmm. But we're not done yet. Why can Simeon depart in peace? He says, I can depart in peace because I've, I've seen the salvation of the people. He's seen a baby. Like, don't, don't, don't miss the context from in which he's saying this statement. He's saying, I can depart in peace. I can die happy. It's, it's been fulfilled what God has promised to me because I have seen the salvation in a 40-day-old baby Again, Isaiah 40, verse, this time verse 5 says this, And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. God said it, so Simeon knows it will be. 
Simeon knew the plan. The Holy Spirit had revealed it to him, revealed it to him through the Old Testament scriptures, he quotes. And why can he say that his eyes have seen God's salvation? Because seeing Jesus, even as a baby, means seeing the thing as good as done. As soon as God comes in the flesh, there's no stopping it. There's no stopping it. So the fourth piece of Jesus' mission, I want you to understand, this is getting to be a long sentence. Jesus came as God's servant for salvation to all kinds of people, and he wins. He wins! (laughs) Mary came for purification. She came to the temple for purification. She brought the one who would purify the nations. Mary came to pay a ransom for her son, but this son would pay a ransom for many brothers. Mary came to obey the law, even even going beyond it, but her son came to fulfill the law for us. You see, Jesus saves exactly those he came to save. There's no consolation if Jesus is there merely to try. There's no peace, there's no departing in peace if he's there merely to give it his best effort. It's a comfort because Jesus is there to succeed. Friends, Jesus is the victorious servant. He's the victorious servant. What a a paradox of a statement that only God can put together. But but here's the hitch, and I want you to see this. Before we we move on, I I want you to see this little hitch that we need to be aware of. It says, quote, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel. Not everyone in, not everyone, not even everyone in Israel will be saved. There will be some who will oppose him. And why will they oppose him? There's a sign There's a sign that they'll oppose, and the sign is the cross. How can a servant be a victorious king? How can someone who dies on a cross be a victorious king? How can someone who dies at the hands of those we thought he was to overthrow be victorious? See, what Jesus does in his life, death, and resurrection will reveal the true thoughts of people's hearts, Simeon says. The thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. He knows what's really in there. Yeah, you know, you, you, you go about your, your day, you go to work, you go home, you go to church, you go wherever, and, and you've got things going on in your heart, and you know, you, you can get really skilled at portraying or projecting something different than what's really in your heart, but I want you to know that the cross of Jesus Christ reveals what's in our hearts, forces us to deal with what's in our hearts. For many people, what's in their heart 
can't, can't hold the cross. When you start saying Jesus is the only way to salvation, when you start saying Jesus is victorious, it sounds pleasant at first, right? Yay, Jesus wins. But you know what that means? It means you don't get to win the way you want to win. It means you, on your own, you lose. Because only Jesus wins. And only victory that can be found is found in being in Christ. And people don't like that. Our human nature, our sinfulness, it doesn't like that. He alone judges every person, and you can't fake it because He knows your heart. People don't like that. And that'll cause division. Proud people won't like that sort of thing. What right does He have over me? Who says that I need help? How can a victorious king die on a cross? How can God become man? Athanasius, he experienced fiery opposition. Multiple times hiding out in the wilderness, in the desert for months, even years. Kicked out of his church, kicked out of his city, exiled. Because people wouldn't receive what the Bible clearly taught, that Jesus was truly God and truly man, God in the flesh. Friends, we shouldn't be surprised that there is such opposition today to truths that are so basic to Scripture. We shouldn't be surprised that we say things that are so plain in God's Word and people, so, so plain, frankly, even looking around creation, and people are so opposed to it. But Athanasius, he reminds us of something, and I, <laughs> I, I, I love this quote. He says, the Savior is working mightily among men. Every day he is invisibly persuading numbers of people all over the world to accept his faith and be obedient to his teaching. Can anyone in the face of this still doubt that he has risen and lives, or rather that he is himself the life? Athanasius in his book on the incarnation, he goes to some lengths. This is in the early 300s AD saying, look, look around you, pay attention everywhere. People are receiving the gospel. People, pagan people who would worship false idols, dead idols. They're turning away from them and they're, they're turning to Christ. All of these things are changing in the world. Do you even see, how can anyone deny that this is the victorious servant? Jesus is the victorious servant that has won salvation for all peoples. And sometimes, sometimes we remember that. We know that. We go, wow, that's, that's awesome. But yet, but yet it, it falls flat in our life for some reason. Today you'll probably go, kids, you'll go somewhere, you'll open up presents, Right? Now, now, there was something that used to happen a lot. I don't know if this still happens today so much, but it used to happen a lot when I was a kid. We'd go to Grandma and Grandpa's house. We'd go open up presents. Grandma and Grandpa would get you something really awesome, right? 
and you'd be like, oh, wow, this is fantastic. And then, and then those dreaded words, batteries not included, right? And you're like, oh, this is awesome, grandma and grandpa, someday when I get batteries, you know? Like, this is so cool for me to look at and not be able to play with because there's no batteries in it, Right? And, and maybe this isn't true today anymore, but I remember, I remember it happened like every year at Grandma and Grandpa's house. And someone would be like, well, are there any stores open? We forgot to get batteries. And someone's looking for a store that's open. There's no stores that are open, you know. Too often we, we think about Christ's victory in that way. Oh, that'll be really cool someday. That'd be really cool someday, but it's too bad you didn't give us any batteries right now. And the, the ironic thing there, the sad thing there is God put the batteries, there in the, they're, they're right there in the box. You see, to look, they were there the whole time. They've been there the whole time. He gave you batteries, but we miss them. I was challenged recently by a book I was reading. It said, it said this, The author wrote, the church has been counting on the victory prophesied in the second coming rather than seeking the victory commanded and mandated in Matthew 28, 18 through 20 before the end of the age. This is a cop-out from present responsibility. We are missing so much of the gift of the victorious Jesus that we actually have that's right there. We're just not putting the batteries in. So, in the second scene, I want to answer the question, what are we missing? What are we missing? So, Jesus' family goes to Jerusalem for Passover every year. There's a number of different holidays, a number of different feasts that families were supposed to go to Passover for, but because so many lived so far away from Jerusalem, oftentimes uh, uh, families would only just go on Passover, the, kind of the, the biggest one, right? And Mary and Joseph, they were obedient to do that. In fact, it says that Mary and Joseph both went, and in reality, it was only required for the man to go, but Mary went as well, and Jesus even went. Jesus wouldn't have been required to go until he was 13 years old, but he goes even when he's 12. And so we see here again, Mary and Joseph are devout Jews. They are devout to the Lord. They are seeking to lead their family in the way that God would have them lead and raise Jesus up in the worship of Yahweh, right? And so these, true, these trips would have been with big groups of people since travel, you know, is, is unsafe and so safety in numbers. And so a big group of people would all travel together. And so it's no surprise that they leave Jerusalem and they don't realize that Jesus is with them. You've, you know, you've, like last night we had some family in town and we were leaving here from Christmas Eve service and I ended up with one of my, you know, my niece with me. My nephew went with me on the way here. My niece came home in the car with us. You know, it's like everyone's switching around. You know what I'm talking about? And so it's, so it's not surprising with a big group of people that Jesus kind of gets lost in the shuffle. They assume, I, I'm guessing that up until from zero to 12, Jesus has been, always been where he's supposed to be when he's supposed to be there, Right? I'm just guessing that he's pretty on the nose with that kind of thing. And so a day into traveling home, and they're like, where's Jesus? So we got a day travel back. We got a day of looking around in Jerusalem, and they find, they find Jesus. 
sitting at the rabbi's feet, receiving instruction from the rabbis, engaging in questions and answers. When the rabbis ask a question, Jesus answers, and the people are amazed at his understanding. They're amazed at the kind of questions that he brings up. They're amazed at his responses. When they find him and they ask their questions, <laughs> they question him for why they've, he's done what he has done, they're once again amazed at his answer. Jesus responds with a question, maybe a little bit of a rhetorical question. Why were you looking for me? Not, not why do you care as my parents to know that I am okay and, you know, find me and et cetera, but, but, but why are you looking for me like you should have known? You should know where I am. Then he says this, he says, did you not know I must? And that, that, that little phrase, I must, be translated, I must, or it is necessary. It's one word in the Greek, and in the book of Luke, it's a key term. It's used multiple times throughout the book of Luke, and, and every time it's, it's used, it points to an aspect of Jesus' mission. It points to an aspect of why Jesus is, is there on earth, what He's doing, why He's come. And, and this aspect here, He says, I must be in my Father's house. Now, some translations will say, uh, I must be about my father's business. Perhaps you've heard a translation that phrases it that way. See, the, the trouble here is there's no actually any word for house or business in the Greek text at all. The literal translation would be, in the of my father. That would be the literal translation of what Jesus says here. And the context actually inserts the, 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 the object that he's talking about. The thing is unspecified, if you will. So we could say, in the thing of my father, about the thing of my father. But I think both translations, whether, whether someone says, uh, whether it translates it, I must be in my father's house or I must be about my father's business, I think both translations actually give us kind of pieces of the picture of what Jesus is trying to say. Why can't they find Jesus? Because they don't fully understand who he is, that he's God's son. Identifies not Joseph, but God as his father. It's not to the exclusion of him being their son, but they need to understand that the father is the priority. And they don't, know, they don't fully understand where he is in that, in that moment, in the temple. That's where God's presence dwelled, right? It, it, from the, the tabernacle, you know, God's presence dwelt on the mountain in, in, in the form of a cloud and then, and then came to be in the tabernacle again over the Ark of the Covenant, right, as a form of a, of a cloud and then came to be in the temple, right? This is where God manifested his presence, and Jesus goes, don't you know I've got to be in the presence of my Father? They don't fully understand who he is. They don't fully understand where he is. 
they don't fully understand what he is doing. He's knowing and making known his father. He's having a conversation with the, the leading experts in the, of the day in his house, father's house, in his father's presence, talking about his father. Who his father is, what his father is about, what, how his father has revealed himself. So that's all well and good, but what has that got to do with you and me? And, 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 and why, why is that such an important thing for us to not miss? Why, how does that, what does that have to do with the batteries, right? Let me give you, real quickly, three batteries here. If I can kind of push that analogy way, way too far this morning. You see, in, in the Old Testament, Israel, as a people, was referred to as God's son, but they often failed. They always failed. Yet through them came the son, Jesus, right? Because of his salvation, because of that salvation that, 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 salvation that I was talking about a moment ago, we get to be God's sons. John 1, 12 says this, To all who did receive him, that is Jesus, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Listen, you are, who you are is changed. If you are in Christ, who you are is totally different than who you were before. There are only two kinds of people, those who are God's children and those who are not God's children. You weren't just saved. You were God's sons. And as sons, you have an eternal inheritance in Christ. And that sonship doesn't start someday. That sonship starts now. You are in his house now. You are in his family now. You are his child now. Second battery. In the Old Testament, the temple was the place of God's presence, right? I said that a second ago. They had to go all the way to Jerusalem for these sacrifices. They had to go all the way to Jerusalem to the temple for these holidays. But Jesus says that He is the temple in John 2, 21, that the presence of God actually came to be among men. Men didn't have to come to the presence of God. God's presence came to them. And when the temple of his body is hung up, the actual curtain that guards the place where God's presence is, is torn down. And he sent his spirit to reside in his family. His family who now is called a temple in him. Ephesians 2 says this, you are members of the household of God. You Christians, you church, you believers are members of the household of God built into a holy temple in the Lord, a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Jesus needed to be in the temple because that's where God's presence was, but because Christ came, now God's presence is with you, church. You aren't just saved by God, you're God's house. The presence of God is with you. You sit 
in His presence wherever you are. His Spirit teaches you wherever you are. This means you are to be a living sacrifice, set apart for God, for His service. It means you can actually meet with the Most High God. Get that. You can meet with the Most High God because of Christ. You can gather to worship Him. You can live in worship of Him. You can do those things because God became man. That is no power for someday. That's for right now. Third third battery I'll give you. In the Old Testament, God made Himself known in His works, through His prophets, in the law. And those were all well and good, but, but Jesus changes all of that. Hebrews 1 tells us this. It says, Long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, who is the exact imprint of His nature. Listen, if those teachers, if those rabbis in the temple had known who was sitting in front of them, if they would have known who was answering their questions, that the God that they're seeking to make known, that the God that they're, that they're trying to understand is actually sitting at their feet. What? But isn't that interesting? Jesus, the God of the universe in all humility, just sitting there answering questions. Politely, hey, you're the rabbi. You're doing your job for God. Let me just sit here. I'll be submissive to you because that's what God would have me to do. He is everything, everything that they were talking about in the flesh. And now, now we're called to be witnesses of it. We're given a mission to declare it like Anna, the wonderful redemption we've been given. Anna, when she sees Jesus at 40 days old, what does she do? She turns to everyone who's around her and she begins to declare the truth of it. 1 Peter 2, it brings all of these themes, these three different aspects, it brings them all together. This is what Peter writes. He says, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Why? That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Friends, we aren't just saved by God. We're God's sons. We're His children. We're not just saved by God. We're His house. We're not just saved by God. You are God's witnesses. See, Jesus must be about His Father's things. The question for us this morning that we might just be missing is, are we about our Father's things? See, what happens when we understand all that the gift of salvation means for us, what happens is it begins to change things. 
We can see it in the actions of Mary compared to Jesus in this passage. Even though 13 years earlier, Mary had been visited by an angel, Gabriel, right? And 12 years earlier, she had seen uh, uh, the words or heard the words of Simeon and Anna as they looked upon her son. Still, she doesn't quite understand. She doesn't quite get it. And it fills her, it says, with great distress, with fear. And I don't know about you, but there are times where I am afraid, where I am filled with great distress about what's going on in my life, when I have fear. But what's Jesus' response? Jesus, who is 12 and is left for three days at the temple by himself, I kind of wonder, where did he sleep? I mean, he had to sleep. He's human, right? Just curl up in the corner. I don't even know. Doesn't matter. He's in his father's house. He's not afraid. What he is is submissive. He's submissive to the rabbis. He's submissive to his parents, it says. But ultimately, he's submissive to his heavenly father. Whatever it is that God wants him to do, he honors and obeys it. God wants him to be in his house, he stays there. God wants him to honor the rabbis, he honors them. God wants him to obey his parents, he obeys them. You see, what happens when we begin to plug in these batteries, we begin to realize the victory that Christ has won for us, fear, fear becomes submissiveness. Submissiveness is obedience to the Lord no matter what. See, we can take, when we take hold of Jesus' victory, that's what happen, happens. Fear is turned to obedient submission. We worship like Simeon. We witness like Anna. We can stand against the whole world like Athanasius because Christ is victorious even now. So I'll end with this quote, one more quote from Athanasius. He wrote this, When the sun is come, Darkness prevails no longer. Any of it that may be left anywhere is driven away. So also now that the, the divine epiphany of the Word of God has taken place, the darkness of idols prevails no more, and all parts of the world in every direction are enlightened by His teaching. May it be so this Christmas in our lives, in our families, 